All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Iridians? What the fuck, Anucks? Yeah, there are a lot down here. There's a, there's a few, a lot of French Canadians, Germans down here in Florida. I am still in Florida. I'm holed up in a small room in my mother's house in Florida. Uh, I'm waiting for them to come home. I'm not waiting. I'm hoping I can get this done before her and her boyfriend get home. Because, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not, not going to say anything bad, but yeah, I got I to gotta record here. It's either here or in the car. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I think I had a good Thanksgiving. I'm still here, though. I'm not a hostage, but I am locked in this room right now to do this. I am in Hollywood, Florida. I have uh, I've done a bit of Florida since I've been here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm keeping it together as, as best I can, people. I, I'm just doing what I can. I've uh, tried to uh, treat myself well. Uh, I've eaten too much. Uh, Thanksgiving went well. I did all the cooking. It all worked out. Things are working out. I do feel a little constipated at my mother's house. I feel emotionally constipated, physically constipated, mentally constipated. I guess really my body just does not want to lose its shit on any level, any level. And I, and I think I don't think that's a bad thing. If you can be emotionally and mentally constipated with some empathy, I think that's, uh, that can be somewhat healthy in certain situations. Now, of course, the physical element, that's probably has to do with the dinner. The best Thanksgiving I have cooked, quite honestly. 22 people uh, came. I enjoyed the company of maybe you know, you know, 19 of them. I'm, I'm lying. You know, I forget that people listen to this, but oddly, not my relatives. My relatives uh, pretend like they listen to my podcast. The only one who really listens is my mother. The rest of them, they, hey, my TV show. It's like, I saw the one with the, uh, yeah, I watch your podcast. Okay, no, that's fine. That's, you know, I don't expect that type of support or attention. People are busy. They do know I'm a celebrity uh, at the level of celebrity I'm at. Uh, someone brought a people's magazine crossword puzzle where i was a clue and that seemed to be very impressive to many people so uh yeah the cooking went fine oh a classic momism uh, at some point during uh the day on thursday she said she had a friend who was ocdc classic enjoyed that very much yesterday uh for a quick second we were out in public and we ran into somebody my mother knows and she introduced me as uh this is my friend mark i mean my son i i was i got i got demoted to friend status for about six seconds you know it's always tricky with uh with family but i will say this you know i don't know if you know this but my mother as uh when i was a kid she painted. She was a painter. She painted constantly. She was always painting. There was always paintings around. We'd go look at paintings. Uh, she would take me to galleries. If I have any sort of uh, idea of what art is, it's because of my mother. And for years, I mean, when I was in, I guess when I was in college, she had gone back for her master's and decided to bail on that for whatever reason. But it was not a you know, a happy decision. But... The great thing is that she's painting again. She's painting big pictures. She's painting on canvases. She's taking classes and she's painting. So on Saturday night, we went out to a, like an open studio thing. It's someplace called Fat City Village or something. There's all these art galleries and art studios. And they do an open art walk thing. And she had a couple of pieces uh, at the uh, studio where she's taking classes. It was very exciting. It was like going to my mom's art opening. I was very proud of her, and it was a, a very sweet thing. And she's doing, uh, 
she's doing uh, painting again, and she's loving it, and it's uh, it's changing her life. And I was uh, very excited for her, and that was nice. It was nice to have good feelings, and uh, you know, like I'm getting a little choked up here, but that was um, that was a highlight, a highlight of the of the trip. I think my mother just got home. We don't need to talk to her, do we? Nah, I don't want. I don't want to do it. I want to do it. Let's just. Let's just. Let's just stay. Let's just stay focused. Let's stay in the groove. Today on the show, Norman Lear uh, joins me at my home in my garage at the Cat Ranch in Los Angeles, California. Norman Lear had an epic life and an epic career in show business. And uh, it's hard to get it all in. It, you know, I always get a little nervous when I talk to these guys that have, you know, 70 years in the racket. You know, how do you put that all together? And I read most of his book. I told, I read most of it. I brought it with me to Florida to read the, the rest of Norman Lear's. Even this I get to experience, his memoir. Beautifully written, hell of a life. I'm going to talk to him in a few minutes in the garage. But how, how do we, you know, I, how did your Thanksgiving go? seriously did you keep it together i mean i'm still down here i'm leaving today and the leftover situation is not great like i i just i went running today down the boardwalk in fort lauderdale because i'd eaten here's here's the thing i don't i don't know who can relate to this but it doesn't matter my grandmother goldie used to make chopped liver now if you're jew you you've got chopped liver in your life somewhere you got i'm even talking now like i'm from new york because i've been here for three days you see what's happening to me i can't come to florida because there's a part of me that's ready to become an old jew i was at i don't even know why i did this i when i picked up my car at hertz they're like you want a mercedes for 25 dollars a day more why am i even lying to you it's 35 dollars a day more now me never driven a mercedes i've driven toyotas for most of my life never never driven a mercedes all right never been in a mercedes would never think to buy a mercedes so why because i'm not that guy so i've been offered the opportunity to not drive the Toyota I was going to rent for $35 a day more, I can, I can be that guy. I can have a Mercedes, which I would never even think of buying, would never think of having it. But what it, what's the big deal is my question. What's the big deal with this car? Do I need to experience it? And I got to be honest with you, I got it. Not great. Yeah, it's a solid car. You know, I'm not going to deny that, but it was not great. Not a great experience. It was, uh, you know, that I found that the left blinker or that the blinker thing was beneath the cruise control thing. And instinctively, you always want to hit the cruise control, which is annoying because you have to and then undo it. So that was a, a problem. Did not like the smell of the car, but that might be by virtue of who was in there before me. I don't know. Solid car, but don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. Couldn't hook my iPhone right up to it in order to listen to music. It asked me, do, do you trust this computer? Why would I trust the computer in a German car that who the hell knows who's going to look in the head of that thing later? So couldn't even play my music. Listen to hip hop all weekend, which was fine. I need to get up to speed. Need to get up to speed. Oh, so the leftover situation, chopped liver. So my grandmother used to make this chopped liver, which was outstanding. And my aunt, my mother's sister, makes it for for thanksgiving but like i haven't really thought she'd nailed it ever you know i finally nailed my thanksgiving dinner when she gonna nail the chopped liver perfectly well this thanksgiving it happened and i took one piece of the, the cracker and i put the chopped liver on it and i was transported right back to my grandmother's house and everything fell into place my mother my aunt my cousins everybody my uncle who's a a, a kind of a, a obnoxious everybody sort of fell into place 
with the entire history of me, almost on a genetic level, there was a warmth that came over the situation and it seemed like decades and decades of, of weirdness and resentment or distance all just closed in around this cracker with chopped liver on it. That was exactly like my grandmother used to make it. It made the entire weekend. Is that crazy? Some chopped liver. Everything made sense. Everything in its proper place. All is forgiven. All distance closed right there on the cracker. Grandma Goldie, rest in peace. So what's going to happen now? I got to get home. I got to get some kale in me. I need some greens. I'm starved of greens. Nothing is moving. Everything's blocked in my heart, in my mind, in my colon, all blocked up. Enough of this holiday. And then I got to fly for five hours. Chop liver. It all came together. It all came together on a cracker. The history of me. The history of my people. All right, let's talk to Norman Lear. A lot of stuff in here. A lot of stuff in here. Oh, I imagine you got to have a lot of stuff. I mean, I have, I have a lot of stuff. Yes, I have a lot of stuff. Well, you know, I read a lot of the. Uh, you, you know, I I got locked into the book, and I'm reading the book, and you know, it, it it's interesting to me because, like I said, my family's from the East Coast, and my grandma Goldie and my grandpa Jackie, you know, he owned a hardware store. But there's this whole generation, yeah, of that. Of those Jews and those people that grew, you know, those first or second generation immigrants, it's just, it, 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 it warmed my heart because I don't hear about it anymore. Uh-huh. And you grew no, up really. in it. And I grew up in it, yeah. It, so how old are you? I'm only, I'm, I'm 51. You're 51. You're 90. 92. Right. So you'd be like a younger of my grandparents' generation, yeah. probably. Yeah. But just to hear the stories and the similarities and the, and, and the, and, and just the names even, there are names in there that are part of my family. Yeah, Suskind. I don't know. Wait, I think that was your what? Your brother-in-law or cousin? Your cousin? cousin. Yeah. I'm mean, like I. I knew them. They, I had family. It reminded me of my family. Now it seemed yeah. like it, to me a lot of the book was was reconciling. You know what you went through with your father with who you are now and and how you feel about yourself. Oh, a lot of it. Yeah. What was he in your mind? The first word that rushes to mind uh, is I ache to just settle for rascal. Yeah, you know, but the fact is he stole, and the fact is he kited checks, and yeah. and the fact is uh, he was sent to prison for it. And, and how old were you? I was nine years old. And that's when he saw your father carted away to prison. Yeah, that's when uh, he went. He was <laughs> he was flying to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. He was going to bring me back a 10-gallon hat. Sure. It maybe explains subconsciously my attraction to hats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my mother told him uh, she didn't like these guys he was traveling with, and or he wasn't traveling with them, but she, he was traveling socially with them or business-wise, but he was going alone to Tulsa to do something. We didn't know what. Came back with some phony stocks that he tried to sell to a brokerage firm, well, I don't know where the hell. He might have been selling it in Tulsa because he was arrested when he got off the plane. Yeah. And uh, that very night or the next night, there were a lot of dozens of people at the house. My mother was selling the furniture. She was moving. 
some fool was trying to buy or did buy my father's red leather chair, which cut me to the quick. Uh, as I say in the book, that's the chair from which he controlled the, the radio. Uh-huh. And uh, on Friday nights, we, you know, there was a fight from yeah. Madison Square Garden every Friday night of my youth. And that was especially uh, a closeness we had because... My mother and sister didn't give a damn about the fights, but 10 o'clock Friday night, we were at the radio listening to the fights. He was sitting in that chair. And he was in that chair. So they, he got arrested and that was it, everything went. Uh, yeah, my mother took my sister. She never admitted uh, <laughs> that it happened. But What, that, yeah, that she but, took your sister? And that she was gone, you know. I mean, I didn't see her but once or twice in the course of the next few years. Why? Why would Who you the know? hell knows? I don't know. Who'd they leave you with? I went with uh, my Uncle Al and my Uncle Eddie and then my grandparents. You have no idea what she was thinking. They'd just leave her I, son at 12 I years no, old. I, and when I said to her in the course of the years, I, uh, where were you? What do you mean, where was I? I was there. Right. Uh, all those discussions would end with please. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was a, enough. Enough, please. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it seemed like it. It was interesting to me because I grew up with selfish parents. I have a narcissistic father. You call it in the book. You say your mother's a narcissist. It's very tricky to parent yourself and to get that love that you need. And it seems to me that in the book, you're sort of sourcing. And you spent like, one of the things I noticed about reading it is that a lot of psychiatrists in the book. Uh huh. You, you know you, that you were you, you you your wife was in therapy. You were in therapy. Everyone was in therapy. Everyone was in therapy. It yes. was just a thing you did, like uh, like a doctor for the cough. Or, <laughs> right, you know. right. It, but but you were never able to to track. You know, until it seems that you wrote this book that you know your need for you know some parenting and some love. It might have been what was right. driving you into into show. But going back to the psychiatrist yeah. for a minute, there it's like there were a lot of fiddle players, and every once in a while, there's a great violinist. Sure, I feel that way about uh, about uh, psychiatrists. A uh-huh. lot of people fiddle around. I fiddled around with yeah. a lot of people <laughs> yeah. in, in therapy. And, uh, you know, I caught a, uh, a good one. You did. And that was, that's why the hunt was always there for the good one. Right. And this was like recently or in, uh, a while ago? So a little while ago. Uh-huh. But certainly in the course of writing the book, uh, a good deal of it. Did you find that when in writing you were able to, like, because I've written a bit, and you, you find out things about yourself in the process, Oh, right? my God, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, I found out a you, lot. Because what, were you, like, mo- mostly memories or your thoughts, or, or what do you think? Well, uh, it's hard to be a human being. Yeah. I mean, it's I don't care the circumstances of birth. They could be altogether terrific. Right. It's still hard to be a human being. Sure. It's harder when you determine to find out who the hell you are as a human being. Right. And uh, and that's what I realized in a little while after I started writing that was happening to me. I didn't want to settle uh, for the stories I could tell mm-hmm. without knowing who the hell I was telling them. Right. And... Uh, so I dug at it, you know. Right, and you actually say that about yourself—that you learn from, uh, I think, uh, Roland Kibbe. Oh you, yes, that Roland Kibbe, the the writer, the TV writer. That one of the things you said you learned from him was that uh, you know you, you should go for perfection. It doesn't mean you'll get it. 
It doesn't but, mean you but gotta, put the work in. I love uh, Aristotle's. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was Aristotle's definition of happiness. Uh-huh. Happiness is the exercise of your vital abilities along lines of excellence, whether you reach it or not, mm-hmm. in a life that affords some scope. Mm-hmm. You're happy if you're doing your thing. You have to know what that thing is. That helps along the way. Uh, and uh, in a life that allows you to. Well, it's, well, like you said in the book at some point that you, you, you started, I think, in a moment of fear that it, whether it was, I think it was probably in the plane. Uh-huh. That you realized in that moment that you'd already already lived like three or four lives, maybe six lives. Yes, and that yeah. that that part of that ability to to remain somewhat fearless in the face of of of, of possibly your life is is that you know you're going to have another life. I believe that with all my heart. Yeah, I believe that. By the time I had, I think you're talking about the military. Yeah, I flew a bunch of missions out of Foggia, Italy. Uh, and when I think about how the hell did they get me to put on a flak suit and an electric suit, or I forget what the hell we called it, uh, and, uh, and an oxygen mask and get into a plane to be shot at from the ground and in the air. Yeah. Uh, I'm not that brave. And as <laughs> yeah. much as I love my country, how do you get me to do that? Right. Uh so I think all the motivation was there, but still getting into that plane required organically, innately, that I didn't believe it was going to be me. I could be frightened as hell, mm-hmm. but it wasn't going, I was not going to die. Yeah, and you didn't. And I think all the times we hear about uh, people near death who are laughing, mm-hmm. who are, it's just possible that they still, at the last moment, don't believe it's going to be them. <laughs> well, you're winning. You're winning. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that you say uh, with Aristotle that, that uh, you know, finding out what you, you doing what you want to do. Because it, it, it didn't take you as long as some people to really lock in, but you definitely had uh, other objectives uh, early on, and it wasn't always show business. I mean... It, I didn't know it wasn't show business at all. I didn't think of it. Well, it was to the extent that I wanted to do what my Uncle Jack was. Yeah. My Uncle Jack, uh, as you know, was uh, was a publicist. Mm-hmm. And he had a quarter to flick me when he saw me. Yeah, He was the only uncle or anybody else who ever flicked me a quarter. Uh-huh. He was also, because there was nobody else doing well and, and well enough to flick me a quarter, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to be a publicist. I, I wanted to be Uncle Jack. Uh-huh. And, uh, you didn't know what it was necessarily initially. And I didn't at that time know yeah. what it was. But when I was uh, overseas, mm-hmm. uh, out of Foggia, Italy, I went into Foggia and I found myself a printer mm-hmm. as I was rounding my 30th mission or something. And, uh, and I stood over him. I spoke a little Italian. And I stood over him and we picked letter for letter. And I wrote a page, which I have a copy of, and uh, it was a page uh, selling myself as a young publicist. Yeah. And I remember clearly writing. I didn't want to be uh, the guy in front, the guy they were asking, who's that? Yeah. I wanted to be the guy behind him who was responsible for his being somebody they could ask, who's that? Right. You wanted to Uh, pull the strings a little bit. I wanted, yes. It was a writing job in a way. 
Right. Yeah. And what I'm learning, by the way, just sleeping way ahead, what I'm learning now is how much I'm enjoying this conversation, talking about myself where I never, ever did. No. Never, ever did. Do you think that's because you wrote it, the, the book uh, sort of gave you a window into it? Well, it's I'm enjoying being uh, being myself. Oh, good. It, 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 you know, it took 90 years? I'm, it took... <laughs> <laughs> the better it took the better not that I had a bad time believe me I had a good time I, I know but it had it took me uh, nearly 90 years to have this good a time <laughs> to feel comfortable in your skin or what will you just feel like- I long in the course of writing the book yeah. I came across an article that uh said suggested I was I, I I did the Charlie Rose show I remember doing the Charlie Rose show mm-hmm many years ago with three guys that I admired totally. They were business guys who were big major leaders. And I came to know them at a couple of other long stories. But, uh, and I, I did the Charlie Rose show. Yeah. So now I looked to take uh, in files and elsewhere uh, to track down that Charlie Rose show. And it came up with two of them. Uh-huh. One was me and these three guys, but one was me a year or two before that, all alone. Uh-huh. One hour, he and I. Yeah. I, I put that disc in, and yeah. I look at that, and I think, oh, my God, I just love that guy. <laughs> I, I, uh, it was me, yeah. and I didn't recognize me. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time with myself not recognizing which is a, just another way of saying enjoying being who the hell I was. Right. Right. Well, it's hard to. I mean, you know, because you're so busy moving forward, engaging. It's hard to have that 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 perception of yourself that other people have. You got like sort of you got to watch you. Yeah, I think you need a little help in the rearing too. Uh, in terms of parents. In terms of parents, yeah. That. What do you think it, was missing in retrospect? Uh, attention. Right. You know, just. <laughs> knowing I was there to start with. Well, that's interesting because, you know, when you have selfish parents and your father was in prison for what, like three years? Yeah. But he, the, the 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 profound thing to me was that when you're a kid, even when he came out of prison, it seemed like you were in conflict and it, you sort of resolve it a bit now with this charismatic guy who was a bullshit artist and a hustler, but he was your dad and he had a lot of charm and a lot of bravado. Right. And you loved him. And he had a zest for life. Right. That's that what, I love. Right. That, did you ever hit that point where you're like, well, there must have been something good about this guy. Oh, and, sure. And then sure. you can focus on that. That's how I spent my life. Right. Yeah. That's why I say rascal. Yeah. You know? As opposed to criminal. <laughs> yes, I... <laughs> <laughs> and your mother was just like all about herself, huh? My mother, uh, my mother, she loved doctors. They cared for her. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe she didn't notice that she had to pay them to care for her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she always had a a favorite doctor to talk about. Somebody uh, somebody else was saving her. Right. And uh, I have uh, my son-in-law is an inveterate. He's a doctor, but he's an inveterate uh, photograph photographer uh-huh. in film. Mm-hmm. I mean, he fil- he's filmed our lives. You yeah, know, from yeah, the yeah. day he right. came into our family. Yeah. And. Uh, he showed me some footage I'd forgotten of an interview he did with my mother when he had just met her. Mm-hmm. So it's a good, great many years ago. 
And actually, I can tell you exactly how many years ago because she came out to California to see her grandson, Ben. It was my first child with my wife, Lynn. We've been married almost 30 years. The, 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 the one you're still married to um, now, yes. the third wife. Yes, the third wife. And, uh, uh, and he, my son-in-law, was, in, was interviewing her on film. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about me. He's interviewing her about her son. And I never am older than nine or ten or eleven years old. In her memory, she's talking about this kid who was terribly funny. He used to fall down the stairs to get a laugh. Uh-huh. That's a quote, and uh, not at all about the father of her three older grandchildren and the and 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 the television personality huh. or writer producer. Uh-huh. What? Nothing. She's. Every story relates to you know our my youth, and then he says uh, off camera, "Oh, oh, here comes here comes your grandson now," and I walk in carrying Ben, an infant, mm-hmm. two three months old. Yeah. Now my mother, I wish this was a television because I, I'm performing her for you radio yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, so she can't, her arms are up yeah. and she's going oh oh ah oh ah and her and her fingers are within 6 inches of the child in yeah. my arms yeah. she never touches him huh. and this is 30 40 50 seconds huh. of ah oh ah e ah oh <laughs> yeah she never touches the child she's offered the baby to hold and ah, oh. yeah and I could not help thinking, this was my mother. Right. And I was an infant, too. Oh, there is a story, I mean, that was legend in the family, that when I was that, oh, I forgot about this. When I was that age, yeah. she was washing me in the sink and dropped me uh-huh. and ran next door for the neighbor. And uh, You're on the floor? No, no, in the sink. Oh, okay, she's I'm in the sink with the water running. Yeah. <laughs> she went next door to get the name for because she didn't know what to do. So in the book, I mm. tell one of the dozens of times because she, in a sense, dined out on that. She loved that story. Yeah, and uh, so she would tell that story at, at different this times. This horrible story. And everybody would laugh and, and so forth. And I would say, well, Bob, why did you run for now? Yeah, I, I wanted to help you. But why didn't you just pick me? I mean, she would it would wind up with, please. Yeah, right. So. How interesting that all her memories of you, if you're telling me you know, what you're thinking, you know, were before your father was arrested. Well, pretty much right. so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I... Uh, I was bar mitzvahed. I right. tell those. I tell the story about. She never. My folks never mentioned that I was bar mitzvahed, or that I won a contest and a. That's so a, sad. And, it's and a, a scholarship to Emerson College. It's so sad. Do you, now when you were like, do you feel the the grief of that? I mean, do you ever no. let yourself? No, and I don't want to sound like I feel the grief of it. No, you don't sound like that, but I'm just saying like it's it's breaking my heart and I'm sitting here. Because, well, there are other things in your life that could break your heart, I'm sure. Yeah. Because we're all... Well, I had similar parents, selfish parents. And, you you know, you when you crave that love that you're not going to yeah. get, the, the, right. that window's closed, door's closed. 
And after a certain point, you feel that weird ache of it. And you know what the hell that ache is until the day you do. And then you realize, well, what the hell am I going to do with that feeling? Well, I think subliminally, I haven't had this thought before. I think subliminally, you learn, you you get that love by giving it. Mm. If it's not there for you to begin with, mm-hmm. you get it by giving. If you have it to and give, you, right? If you have it to give, and mm. you and you certainly get it if you give it. That's right. So let's go. Let's track the 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 exciting adventure. So you you're in World War Two. And you yeah. do like what's exciting to me as a guy who you know who is a, I'm a comedian myself and I talk to comics is that you seem pretty aware you know in retrospect you know the moments that influenced you and in, in sort of building your ability to create comedy and what what was great about comedy what resonated with you uh-huh. and I found it a, a, a great story about the uh, the Frank Sinatra performance and yeah, when you Phil Silvers yeah when you were in the army. And because uh, I had no idea that uh, people would feel that way about Frank Sinatra, but what you took away from it? Oh, I never forgot it. Well, what, what, what happened exactly? Well, uh, I'm stationed in Foggia, Italy, and it's announced that uh, the USO has got a show coming over. They're building a stage out in a big meadow, and maybe fifteen or twenty thousand of us are going to be out there to see this show, and it's Frank Sinatra. Now, all we knew overseas about Frank Sinatra was uh, he, he, the women were crazy about him. So our girlfriends, our wives, our sisters, yeah. were, our mothers were nuts about Frank Sinatra. And there were great stories about him in Yank, which was the magazine of record we all read. And uh, So they were like torturing you with these stories, I guess, on some level. Well, on some level, <laughs> I mean... On some level, yes. I mean, you did, there was a great dislike, at the least, yeah. for this figure. Yeah. Oh, and that he was not serving because of a punctured eardrum. Right. And that didn't sound that <laughs> it didn't <laughs> sound right to guys who were serving and yeah. so forth. Um, and we came came to this uh, meadow, yeah. and and uh, Phil Silvers. Uh, who we didn't know at all and didn't know his name, came out ostensibly to interview, uh, I mean, or or introduce. Yeah. And then he started to pick on three guys who were sweeping up. Right. And he brought one guy over, and he started to uh, jump on this guy for standing around sweeping up while he was trying to talk, or I forget how they got into it, but then he said, uh, "You like you know this Sinatra guy? You like the Sinatra? You didn't know him either. He was yeah. a GI." Yeah. So he said, "I suppose you think you could sing." And he got the guy to go ah. Yeah. And then he slapped him in the face and said, "That's you got to go from the chest to the throat to the mouth." Yeah. And he and he wound up beating the crap out of this guy <laughs> for singing so poorly and so forth. And then finally said, "Ah, the hell with it." And as he and the guy started to walk off, the music hit, and the guy turned around, and he was Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. So he had created, that bit had created so much empathy for this poor G.I. who was yeah. getting the shit beat out of him. And uh, before we knew it, Frank was singing one of the great Frank Sinatra songs, and love was in the air. <laughs> really? And what, what, what did that tell you? 
That told me that uh, if you're going to uh, fool with uh, an Archie Bunker, put him in a position that creates some empathy. Uh huh. So what created more empathy than anything else for me as a kid of the Depression mm-hmm. was a man who was concerned about supporting his family. Mm-hmm. And that was Bunker's constant struggle. Right. You know, behind everything was a working stiff who had to, for good reason, be concerned about making a living. And you can direct that that moment, that awareness to that moment with Frank Sinatra, that, uh, oh, the realization. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, that yes. empathy was important. That um, Yes. And when you were at Emerson... And the same empathy I have for my father and continue to a rascal. Like you said at the beginning, it's hard. Life is hard. Life is Difficult. hard. Difficult. And when you were at Emerson, like now that's a very popular, uh, you know, a, a lot of comedians go there and they have a lot yeah. of, But at the time you were there, what was it primarily? Uh, it wasn't that long. It was only a few years after it had been called uh, uh, Emerson College of uh, Elocution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to believe now. And uh, we were about maybe eight guys. All the rest were girls. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> That, I, have, I, I never, ever have complained about that. Yeah, uh, We were about eight, ten guys in the school and a couple, 300 women. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I lived uh, 240 Marlboro, was it, Street? Yeah, and, I know yeah. where that is, yeah. And uh, uh, Mom and Pop Lawless, I'll never forget the people who own the boarding house. It's, it's, it's weird and, what sticks, huh? It's amazing what sticks, and... Going back to comedy, the old Howard in Scully Square. Mm-hmm. Scully Square so was, theater. Oh, it was a burlesque theater. Yeah, in those years, well known around yeah. the country. If you were interested in burlesque, uh-huh. and I saw uh, a lot of the early comics working there, the guys who became great stars, Milton Berle and Red Buttons. You saw and, them there, and saw them there. I don't remember actually seeing Milton Berle. But it's very possible. Who who do you remember seeing? I remember seeing Red Buttons. I remember seeing Joey Fay. I remember seeing uh, Fat Jack, mm-hmm. Fat Jack Leonard. You saw the Ritz Brothers? The Ritz Brothers. Harry Ritz was as funny as any human being uh, in or out of comedy I have ever... Mm-hmm. I mean, there was something about him. And there was an overall sadness yeah. uh, that he was enveloped in. And, uh, and he, you know, his brothers were a setting. It was like he was a jewel yeah. in a glorious setting, and his brothers were the setting. Uh, and he was... And they sang and danced yeah. and, and, uh, and did comedy. But all the hilarity rested, and tragedy... Uh, On Harry. Rested in Harry. And you felt that, and you feel, you, do you, and, and that's something. To this, I can, I feel it thinking about him, and in in that resonated with you, totally. Because you, I, I mean, I assume that you know some of the stuff that in in reading the book and talking to you now, and even talking about Archie, uh, you know that that you have that sadness. We all sort of have that sadness somewhere, and the guys that can't hide it, and can integrate it into this sort of tragically funny persona, uh-huh. those are the real, the real gifted comedic performance that, those are where the clowns rest yeah yeah uh, there are you know a couple of clowns a century yeah well, who were your clowns Bert Lahr was a clown Red Skelton was a clown yeah 
what's his name? I Sanford and Son. Oh yeah, Red Fox. Red Fox. Uh, Red Fox could walk into a room and tell you your mother just passed out, and yeah, and like, it would be funny. He's he was phenomenal. I got some of those old party records. I just like yeah. just his whole demeanor. Yeah. What do you do with like Jackie Gleason too? Oh, Jackie Gleason was yes, Jackie Gleason. Yeah, yeah. All right, so okay, so now you, you go to Emerson, you get out of college, and you try. I don't to, get out of college. I enlist. Right after a year and a couple of months, and then you do real. You get shot at. You're doing the real yeah. thing. You're, this is not light service. You flew over thirty flew, missions. Yeah, and you got shot at. I got shot at. Yes, <laughs> in the same lifetime. It's hard to believe. I, I, I can't. I, Came back and, and as I mentioned earlier, from my uh, from standing over this uh, printer, right uh, with the public in, in yeah. Foja, I had uh, I got two responses. Yeah, one was a firm job offer. Yeah, strangely enough, George Evans was the guy's name. He was Frank Sinatra's press agent. Okay, and the second one was for a job uh, uh, interview. Uh-huh. I went to the job interview and made the mistake of telling him I had a job offer, and he took advantage of knowing that and made me an offer right then I had to take or 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 not. Yeah. And so I wound up with George Ross was his name. Did you feel that when you were doing the, the being a press agent that you that you enjoyed it? I mean it, did it fade? Well, I I, I didn't realize that uh, you know I was I wrote the humor column yeah. in the Weaver High School Lookout. So I was there but didn't realize it, you know. Right. And then when I came out to California to be a press agent, ran into Ed Simmons who wanted to be a comedy writer. One night we wrote something together while our wives went to a movie. When they came home, there were nightclubs uh, in those years. We went out and we sold it for thirty five, forty bucks. I love the story, you know. Like obviously, we can't talk, we can't uh, go through the whole book here. But like the idea, like you know, well, you, I'm having too good a time. Why can't we do that? We can. We can for a sure. Few days. I don't care. It's fine with me. <laughs> I got nothing. I got some coffee. So, but the idea, like you know, in the book, you go to you know, you talk about you're marrying your first wife because it sort of felt like you felt like that was the thing to do, and you were compelled to do it. You don't know why you did it, but you did it. But I think a lot of people got married for that reason. I think a lot of people did, yeah. <laughs> it was just what you did. But what was fascinating to me in, in some of the framing of when you decided to move you, your your wife out to uh, to Los Angeles is you didn't you wanted to be a press agent, but you got out here, and not unlike your father, I mean, you, you go into a lot of stuff about your father's, uh, you know, he was a hustler, and, you know, after, you know, he made a little money right. with the 10 percenters, he got, he got into manufacturing appliances with no no ability to do that at all. Right. And he just was, you know, he he, he was a, a P.T. Barnum. You know, he got a lot of plates in the air, right? That was my dad. Yeah. P.T. Barnum was good. <laughs> yeah. yes. So you come out here, but like at that time, the middle class was really sort of developing itself. We uh, we got to California, to Los Angeles, yeah. uh, you know, four or five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, uh, in those years, the I st- still, the uh, L.A. Times came out at night on Saturday, and I went out to get a copy uh, so that I could look in the want ads, uh, not the want ads, the uh, real estate ads to find a place to live, mm-hmm. which was very hard in those years. So I'm driving along Sunset Boulevard. I pick up my newspaper. Maybe, I don't recall this, maybe I saw 
something that took me off of Sunset Boulevard because maybe I could find a place yeah. that was going to be advertised the next morning. Um, and I come down a street, El Centro, in, in the m- middle of Hollywood, and come across a, uh, a theater that's been fashioned from a house, a 99-seat theater, which is below equity, and, uh, and a marquee that read, Opening Tonight, Shaw's Major Barbara. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't that I was the greatest uh, reader in the world at that age, but but enough to have fallen absolutely in love with George Bernard Shaw, and especially with Major Barbara, because of arguments that took place in there, which just dazzled me. And uh, uh, And there was a guy sweeping up. Mm-hmm. And I stopped uh, and crossed the street to talk to him. When he heard that I had a wife and child in a motel and had only been here an hour, <laughs> that is from Connecticut to, yeah. to L.A. in an hour, uh, he was you know, totally interested. Uh-huh. I told him I wanted to be a press agent. That's uh-huh. why I came out here. Well, they had somebody doing that for this little theater, but if I wanted to hang around him, I would meet some people. And, and I was thrilled with that and then he says if you want to see the show i have a seat for you yeah well i'm my mind immediately goes to my wife and child in a motel yes yeah. you know on the other side of the country their first moments there i knew i had to see this show <laughs> you know, yeah yeah I, the fates were telling me directly yeah. i had to call my wife who was terrible but I sat down, there were three seats in front of me that were empty. Uh, as the lights faded, uh, in walk, Alan Mowbray. Alan Mowbray was a well-known British character actor, very well-known. And this dame, uh, Edith and Charles Chaplin. Mm-hmm. I had noticed in the, uh, in the cast a, yeah. a Sidney Chaplin, which right. I didn't know. But that was, turned out to be his son and the reason he was there. But in front of me sits Charles Chaplin. Yeah. First night in Hollywood. First moments in yeah. Hollywood. The show ends, and, uh, and you know, it was a great performance. Great, great, great production of it. Wonderful actors. And uh, and Mr. Chaplin, and there's nobody that ever moves sitting behind Charles Chaplin. <laughs> yeah. And he sits there. No backstage. So the actors came out. And 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 what was their stage became, uh, the, they sat down in front of Mr. Chaplin. Yeah. And uh, and he got up and told them how terrific the show was and how wonderful he thought they all were. And then he reached the point where he said, "I never feel I when I enjoy something so much, I feel I have to pay back, and and the words are not enough." And so he performed a pantomime. He was a, a, a drunk who was trying to mail a letter across the little stage uh, in, in a supposed letterbox uh-huh. in a high wind. Uh-huh. So he was battling a high wind to get to a letterbox to mail it to Charles Chaplin. Wait, so were you like, I, I, I've arrived. This is, I can't even believe oh, my right. luck. Right. And you, so you went and told your wife, what'd she say? Oh, I couldn't even tell her. I mean, she was she had no interest in anything. You know, horrible. It was an, it was not a very uh, yeah attractive thing to do. <laughs> right? No. Yeah, but but worth but, it in but, retrospect. But well, in 
I didn't have to wait for a lot of retrospect. I just had to do it. <laughs> All right, so you're here, and you're running around with your with uh, with your uh, your cousin's uh, husband, Eddie Simons. S- Eddie Simmons. Simmons, yeah. And he wanted to be a comedy writer, and you wanted to be a press agent. He didn't know how he was going to be a comedy writer. You didn't know how you were going to be a press agent. Right. And you're selling these things. And and so then you you guys- so we got we we sold this piece of material the very first thing we wrote is a song right a, a parody to yeah. the Sheik of Araby I okay. can't remember what the hell it was about twenty dollars was half of what I could make yeah out there in the field uh, it, uh, selling door to door so that was a big deal we took a an office on Beverly Boulevard at Kenmore over a delicatessen and uh, six dollars a month. And we started to write in the evenings, yeah, every night. Uh, scratched our fannies a lot and yeah. wrote a little, yeah, and then wrote that piece for Danny Thomas, and got lucky. That was the, that was your yeah. big break. That was the big break. I call. <laughs> there's a name I used because when I was uh, a kid, I loved the name Merle Robinson. He was a friend of mine, yeah, and I loved his name. And I guess I in the armies uh, when I didn't. I was afraid of being gigged by a, I don't know, military police or something. Maybe I was drunk. I don't yeah. know. Uh, I used the name Merle Robinson, and I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I called. Uh, I made sure it was the lunch hour. Hopefully, the agent would be out to lunch, and I got the secretary, and I did. And I said my name was Merle Robinson. I was at the New York Times. I just spent two days with Danny Thomas. Uh, I uh, I have two questions. I'm gonna I'm writing the article on the plane. I'll, I'll file it when I get there. I have two questions. I have to ask. anyway. She gave him the the, the home number, number. The yeah, home yeah. number. I called. He was uh, working as it happened with his uh, uh, pianist. Yeah, looking for a piece of material to do the very next night. Hopefully, he could find something in his trunk that. The crowd at Ciro's, which was a popular joint at the time, and he was a, this was a friar's event, so all the people would be show business people. Yeah. They knew his material. Anyway, I said, you don't have to look for something. I've, this is a new piece. Uh, I, it can't be long. I can't learn anything long. I said, this is uh, you know, five minutes, four minutes, whatever. I said. Mm-hmm. He said, get over here right away. Well, first of all, he was fascinated at how I got him on the phone, <laughs> how I got his He number. was impressed. He yeah. he thought that was funny. Yeah. I said, uh, we'll be over there before 6 o'clock. He said, uh, it's 1 or 2 or whatever the time it was. Uh, you said you were in Hollywood. I'm only in Beverly Hills. You can be here in 20 minutes. But we see we hadn't written this thing yet. <laughs> so uh, I said, I'll get there soon. Anyway, we got there at 5 or 5.30 or whatever. Yeah. And he did it the next night at Ciro's. And, and you were uh, there? And we were in the kitchen uh-huh. looking out. I know out that kitchen because yes? it's a comedy store now. And well, I worked there. It's a comedy store, yes. Yeah, yeah. I know that room. Do you still do stand-up? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was there last week. Oh, I, I worked will, there all the time. Will you let me know the next time you're there? I'd love yeah. To, I'd love oh, to sure, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, but it's so weird to me because I know it's Ciro's and I'm sort of obsessed with the history of that place. Yeah. And it's not that much different, you know, than, than I mean, structurally. Structurally, it's very similar. Is it? it yeah. It was such a big deal in those days. I mean, it was coming down at yeah. that time, but it, it had been, when I first got here, it was just. Yeah, and so you're the, sitting there and you're place. listening to your bit 
I'm, I'm, I'm looking out at the faces laughing. It's killing. And re- recognizing Alan Ladd and recognizing, you know, this one or that one. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. Oh, and that was it. And what did he say, Danny? What did he pay? The next, oh, he he told me he was going to give us three thousand dollars and gave us a thousand. Yeah, and uh, it was always going to. Uh, well, I thought we were going to get to two thousand. Yeah, but he made a big joke, and it was you know, and it worked. Uh, it's doing more good at St. Jude, he would say. <laughs> and before I could reach him across the room, he would shout it out. And oh, so really? Every, he hold, it, as long as he knew him. It, and it did indeed do more good at St. Jude. <laughs> yeah. So the break came from someone in the room seeing that. Danny, uh, David Suskind, a first cousin, mm-hmm. was a big shot mm-hmm. and didn't even know I was in California. I had no guess he was there. He the next morning he asked, or maybe that night I don't know. He asked Danny Thomas who wrote that material, and he didn't he, he begin to think it was the same Norman Lear. Yeah, uh, and he called, and he had us there in, in two days. We uh-huh. were there. We were in New York doing the the Jack Haley Ford F O R D Star Review. And Suskind was at what, at MCA. He was at MCA. Yeah, uh-huh. when Lou Wasserman and when it was. Everything that CAA is today. Uh huh. So he it was you. called the octopus. Uh huh. Because they yeah, had everything. They, they had everything. And uh, so he flew you to New York, and you're writing on the Jack Haley show. Jack Haley. Jack Haley, the Tin Man. Yeah. Mm hmm. And, and that was your first gig. And you, here, the, you, your cousin's husband wanted to be a comedy writer. You didn't know what the hell was happening, and boom, you're a comedy writer. And I'm a comedy writer. And and it it was a big job. That was the beginning of television, right? You know what was really interesting about it? I I, I don't remember whether I had this in the book uh, or I thought about it afterwards, but uh, uh, we did the Jack Haley Ford Star Review. So right after the first show, yeah. Uh, it was the first time anybody had ever heard of us. Yeah. And the show did well. And all the other comedy writers were in radio. Mm-hmm. So we were TV comedy writers. And that was like a, you know, a big bumper sticker. Right, the new guys. We were the, we were we were the guys cuz we were TV comedy writers. <laughs> Nobody knew about TV. Right. Um, so you're saying all the old guard was radio. It was just a shift of the medium. Right. And, and, and then you guys... And suddenly of- we're this brazen, brash, new television writers. Wow. Right. Who writes television? Simmons and Lear. <laughs> <laughs> you lucked out. We, oh, my God. Luck has played a big part in my and life. Then, and then you go to... Uh, is that when, you, when Jerry Lewis took a liking to you? Yes. It seemed very specific that Jerry Lewis was is sort of a disconcerting gentleman in a way. Well, he became, I think he was, uh, there could not have been anybody in the history of uh, the world that was funnier than Jerry when when he, at the very beginning, I think I say in there, you know, I, I remember afternoons in the, in his playhouse, yeah. just the three of us, Simmons and I and, and, and Jerry Lewis, and we'd throw suggestions at him and he'd be the bartender and then he'd be the bartender with an Italian accent yeah. with an Italian accent and a bunion he just kept throwing and it and he'd be, do it yeah and he did he was I mean he was you laughed your ass off and then oh my god how we laughed and he <laughs> added time to my life yeah I, I'm I'm 90 Jerry is a good reason why I'm 92 and sitting here yeah 
Uh, and so is everybody else that made me laugh. I feel that way about laughter. Mm-hmm. That's why I got to see you at the uh, comedy store. Yeah, you come down. <clears throat> so what was that, that, that weird story that when Jerry had you in his dressing room? No, it wasn't his dressing room. It was a hotel room. <clears throat> it was his birthday. We were going out to dinner. We knocked on the door, and he says, come in. And we walked in, and he's lighting a candle that's... Uh, that's uh, you know, attached to an erection uh-huh. <laughs> and singing uh, happy birthday to the greatest thing that ever happened to him or something. Oh, my God. I mean, he was fun. It was as funny as anything I'll ever see. <laughs> I can't believe it. All right, so you write for Martin Lewis for a few years, and but you don't know why you were fired, it seems. Do you? It's I, I, I don't know, because just before we were fired, they took out a... Uh, or Jerry does did these things, took out a full page ad and variety, yeah. you know, praising us. So, so you have no idea. You I, never I, got closure on that. No, but after that, you know, you did a series of variety shows. You did, did the Martha Ray show? Did George Gobel? I started to direct as well as uh, write. You talk a lot about this guy, um, Nat Hyken. Right. What was the, the great thing about Nat Hyken? He was just a great uh, producer and writer. He, he did Bilko, mm-hmm. and uh, Bilko was as funny as any show ever. Uh, he was just great. He did the Martha Ray show. I, I followed him, Yeah, and I was following uh, a master. What did you learn from him? I didn't learn from him because I didn't know him, Yeah, uh, but I learned from his work. Yeah? What uh, was it, essentially? Funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he didn't write to say anything. Yeah, he wrote, you know, I for out of the seriousness of my childhood, I cared to to get the laughs out of things or subjects that mattered. Uh, you know, there's nobody funnier. There isn't a character funnier than Bilko. Yeah, and uh, he didn't have anything on his mind more than funny. Well, when, and, when you say that, though, because I know that you talked a little bit about it with the uh, with the way Jerry Lewis handled a bit. What were those things, essentially? I mean, I know what slapstick is, and I know what going for the laugh is, but what was it that when you would see a bit and you would say, you know, it's 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 shallow or, or it's empty, what what were you looking for when you say you were writing about things? Well, I, it wasn't... I mean, there's nothing that, that Hyken did that was shallow. Right. I mean, funny is funny is right. funny is funny. Right. Uh, that he did it with funny characters, with Bilko and the two guys that, you know, <laughs> that he bossed around. And shallow for me is, uh, is you know, father knows best. Uh-huh. It wasn't as funny as Bilko. I mean, it was right. no, the, and who, who I can't remember who did it, but they weren't trying to bring you, an audience to its knees, right? Laughing, they right. weren't looking for giant for for belly laughs, right? Hyken was looking for belly laughs, yeah, and he got them, yeah. And I was looking for belly laughs. We were on serious subjects, but the characters were wanted to be as funny as hell, and we were looking for big laughs. I also happened to notice out of my own life that things were funnier when something serious was going on. Uh-huh. If you were getting laughs out of uh, a serious situation, they were bigger laughs or more rewarding laughs. Sure. Because people were caring. Yeah. 
Is that what you sort of noticed in Major Barber with the arguing? I mean, was there... Because I, I don't know that there's not no, major barber was an exercise in 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 wit solely, not heart. Yeah, uh, he wrote a, he, he had a series. There was a uh, a little book of his spiritual uh-huh. uh, messages. Yeah. there you find heart and soul. The rest, rest of him was all wit. Okay, so mind, what so, mind over matter. So when you when when you like when you think about who you were at that time. When you were writing for uh, Martha Ray and, and thinking about Nat Hiken and developing these chops of pushing, what you're saying is like you you, you thought that the risk for you or, or you, your particular craft and what you brought to comedy was that you could take these serious subject matters and if you played them with heart and empathy and if the characters were grounded, you could get those belly laughs. Yes. You didn't have to yeah. sell it short. Who was the guy that really inspired you to do that? I know you talk about uh, about Fred Allen a bit as being a, a great uh, influence on you. Right. But it seems to me that some of the, that movie you were going- I think it's my own life. I yeah. mean, you know, when when you're nine years old and your father is hauled off to prison and your mother is selling his, his red leather chair, which mattered so much to you, and somebody puts his hand on your shoulder and says, uh-huh, you're the man of the house now. I mean, can you say fucking? Sure. That's fucking funny. <laughs> And uh, yeah, yeah. and I somehow understood that. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I I grew up with that. Right. So, it, it, had, it had to be funny. It, it yes. It, you know what I mean? Or else the I pain mean, would crush you. And I'm looking into the eyes of an absolute fool. Right. Right. So so you, you did like a series of variety shows and musical shows. I mean, you yeah. were you were a guy. And you, and then you. I'm what? still a guy. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, but you were you were busy as hell yeah. making television. Yes, at that time, and it was. In- and then I, then I, uh, we were doing the Martha Ray show, and uh, uh, and a fellow by the name of Phil Sharp, another writer, came to visit us, and uh, he was in the middle of the divorce as I was, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I asked him how things were going, and he said good i mean i was having a lot of trouble uh in my divorce settlement and uh and he wasn't and uh i said how come you have the four kids i only have one one yeah he said all she wants is my joan davis reruns and he had started the show and created a show with joan davis who was Uh worth a good deal of money and that's all she wanted and it was over and out yeah and so i I paid more attention to I thinking about I've got to do a situation comedy because uh-huh. that's the only way I'm going to own something. Right. You didn't own anything doing live television, but okay. you did own something creating a show, uh, right. a, a situation comedy. So in that mood from that moment, <laughs> uh, when I read about uh, Till Death Us Do Part, the British show, which was about a father and son or son-in-law, Fighting over, I mean, uh, in one bigoted. Uh, that was I lived through that. I knew that. Yeah. And I wondered how did I not think of that before? So yeah. that's how that happened. With all in the family. With all of that, that became all in the family for me. Yeah, but in between there, you you partnered up with Bud Yorkin. You wrote the movies. Yes. You were on the Paramount right. lot. You did Come Blow Your Horn with Frank Sinatra. Did you ever mention to Frank Sinatra that you saw him in Foggia? I'm sure I did. I just mentioned to his daughter Nancy. 
About that? Uh, about, about this, yeah. And, uh, you know, there is the XM, the yeah, Frank XM. Sinatra yeah, station. Yeah. Uh, after the holidays, I'm going to do, uh, there's going to be a Frank Sinatra, Norman Lear, XM something. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, you're going to yeah. talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to guys... tell these stories. Well, did you remain friends? Yes, yes. I was at a 65th or 70th or birthday in Palm Springs. And, uh-huh. Uh, I adored him. He, I knew nothing but good s- stories about him. When did you start developing a, a well-informed social conscience? Uh, I think it was, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was always there. I mean, the, the very first Martin and Lewis sketch, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was distressed at the end of that show because Jerry had carried on out of the script. Right. It, the audience, you know, roared. It right. Was, it was hilarious. He couldn't help and, himself. Uh, but that sketch yeah. caused a, lo- a big stir weeks later. How, how so? Be- because it was about something. Right. At that time, uh, motion picture industry was afraid of uh, television. Which oh, they, that was a sketch about the television putting movies out of business. Y- yes, right. putting movies out of business, and uh, it caused the movie industry to call. Or the movie industry caused Martin and Lewis to take out an ad apologizing. So our show, our sketch, was very effective in the way I wished it to be effective, provocative, and pro- yes, shit starting. Yes. Yeah. And and I I didn't uh, I mean it's, I'm only mentioning it to indicate that it's always been there right right some, some kind of a social conscience right and 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 sort of uh, you know pushing buttons and showing hypocrisy and, and kind of holding the mirror up yeah but it's interesting when you say I as I hear those words I'm, I think about my dad and uh, that's another way of looking at it I never looked at it that way but. How hypocritical to be the guy who was going to set the uh, uh, the uh, uh, whistling teapot <laughs> industry on fire, right? Uh, and bullshitting and lying and stealing a, uh, to get there. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, I mean, do, 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 <laughs> <laughs> so so you know, so you had to live with that hypocrisy. You had to live within you. Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, God. You know, the longer you live, uh, the clearer things become. You know, yeah, if, if there's new information. focused on it. You never thought about it that way? No, I mean, things. Uh, I'm racking focus as we speak. And sure. I'm learning. Yeah, well, that's interesting that, you, you know, that his, uh, because you're very aware in the book all the way through that, like, you, you know, he was just probably bullshitting you again. Yeah. That you know that you couldn't depend on anything he was saying because it just either he didn't show up or he didn't uh, he didn't make good on his word and it was just the way it was and he might have been lying. Right. So that there's, so, a, there's a great relationship to my, from my father to the America we're living. In, I see it. Today. I see it now. Like you, you want his love, yet you you know there's also the pushback. Yeah. Which is like I want your love, but you might not have that to give me, and also you're full of shit. I talked to my wife, uh, who's in New York right now. Yeah, and uh, just before coming here, she said Christmas is everywhere in New York. Yeah, the lights. Yeah, 
and uh, and I thought immediately it just gets earlier and earlier, and Christmas gets more commercial, and, <laughs> yeah. and we lose uh, more citizens and and gain more uh, consumers yeah, yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting though because you sort of like there's a couple points in the book where you kind of throw these aside that I thought were very uh, very profound. You know, like you know, in in being aware when you when you're uh, hustling these photo albums and and doing these other things as furniture that you know this was the new middle class and also you you talked about driving the car and the pride in cars there was a lot of stuff in there about oh, cars yeah. and that you know how we lost that that once the manufacturing base of automobiles left that something was taken right. uh, from america i you know i, I there it, it it's cuz they're in there there these little pieces that i i that kind of struck me but nothing was taken in terms of the cars we just you know there was a time when the Volkswagen was coming in and, and followed by the small Japanese cars. Yeah. And the less, as, as, as Americans gobbled them, the lesson was clear to the American motor car industry, make smaller cars. Yeah. But, but I wish I could find it. I've tried. But, but I, knew, I remember an ad uh, where one of the major companies, Chrysler or Ford or, or General Motors, was advertising... They were making a small car, but it was the largest of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you can't find that one. Oh, I I know I saw that ad somewhere. All right, so okay, let's let's get into it. So we don't we, we you can you get home and go sleep at some point, or we'll be here all night. So you 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 take you you took the format of the British show, which was loaded. Yes, that you know you knew right away that this this tension between you know a, a bigoted you know a working class. Father, father figure right with this uh with this son-in-law was going to be something and you can make that you could put out a, an american template to that so what is the process did you have to buy the rights to that or you didn't i don't i didn't have to but i did oh okay I, <laughs> yeah I, I mean i didn't i i thought i had to at the time but i didn't have to because i did an entirely different show based on that idea sure so how do you cast it i know you had a relationship with rob reiner which is fascinating to me that you well, when right, he was a kid. I, I I made it three times, and so it was two different young people each time. Rob was, I thought, too young, uh-huh. uh, and uh, so I made it twice before. Same script, pilots with Carol, yes, with Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton for ABC, uh, a different network. They dropped it after two pilots, and then CBS came along. Mm-hmm. In terms of the casting. It was uh, a great uh, casting director, Marion Doherty, that introduced me to uh, to Gene Stapleton, and uh, and I think I'm pretty sure was responsible for my meeting weeks later uh, in California. I met Gene Stapleton in New York, mm-hmm. met uh, <laughs> met Carol O'Connor in uh, in Los Angeles. So I was coming out to Los Angeles to interview. Uh, actors, when I had the thought that maybe Mickey Rooney could play the role. Oof. Yeah. So I called uh, his manager's name was Red Doff. Yeah. And I called Red Doff. Yeah. And uh, he said, "Wait a minute, you got an idea? He's 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 right here. He happens to be in my office." Yeah. And uh, I let me put him on. I said, "No, no, don't put him on. I'm coming out there anyway. I'd like to meet with him. I want to tell him about the character." Uh-huh. No, he he really. Uh, I'd never met Mickey Rooney. He didn't know me at all. Yeah, uh, maybe he knew of me, but he didn't know me. And and uh, uh, he had to get on the phone. Yeah, that's all. I 
so he gets on the phone. He spoke about he spoke of himself in the third person. Uh, hey, you got an idea? Hi, Norm. Yeah. You got an idea for the Mick? <laughs> Uh, let me hear it. I said, Mickey, I'm coming out there in, in a couple of days. I, I'd love to meet with you. I have to tell you about the character. I mean, yeah. It doesn't translate easily on the You got an idea for the Mick? Tell him. It's an easy, I'll understand or whatever. I had to tell him. So I said, well, he's a bigot. Uh, he will say Spade and Hebe and Coon and uh, so forth. And... Uh, and he said, uh, hold it. He said, Norm, they're going to kill you. They're going to shoot you dead in the streets. You want to do a show with the Mick? Listen to this. Vietnam vet, <laughs> short, blind, large dog. And I roared. You roared right. You laughed right in his face. We, we we never met to talk about it. <laughs> so you do, now, were you a fan of Lenny Bruce? Oh my God, yes. Yeah, Lenny Bruce. Yes, of course. Right. How could I not be a fan of Lenny? Bruce? Did you ever see him? I did see him. I saw him uh, on a Sunset Strip on the second floor. What the hell was the name of that club? Uh, I did see him several times. Yeah, and it, was it electric? And I did, I did come to know him a little bit. Oh, oh yeah. it was very electric. Yeah, you got to know yeah. him a little bit. I got to know him a little bit. I mean, enough to know him. Was there a sense that he was doing something important? Well, there was uh, every sense that was for me, of course, yeah. and uh, and for his audience. I mean, the people who came to see Lenny Bruce knew this didn't exist anywhere else until Mort Saul came along. Right. Right, and he t he tamed it a little bit. And, well, yeah, Lenny Bruce was further out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he would go way out there, huh? Yeah, I mean, like you know, you listen to that stuff, some of that stuff now, and it's like it's almost like you really got to put it together because his stream of consciousness, you know, it, you didn't know if it was going to come back around. It's fascinating. Yeah, he was the white Dave Chappelle. Yeah, <laughs> Dave will be very happy to hear that. Um, all right, so you so you cast a show and and it doesn't do well out of the gate. It didn't do well out of the gate. It was uh, it, as a matter of fact, if it had not gone on in January, at midterm mid yeah. uh, season, uh, it might not have made it. Uh, went on in January. It didn't. It struggled. But then the other shows on there were only three networks. It's hard to believe now. Do there you was miss a that? time when there were only three networks. Do you miss that? Do you think it was a, a more effective way to create a social dialogue? I mean, like, I always ask people about that who remember that. Like, it seemed to me that now everything is so fractured, and in, in some ways it's good that everyone can make choices, but it seemed like the cultural dialogue was more focused when it was a more intimate business. Well, it's, you know, America has a tendency to go over the top all the time. I mean, we just go over the top. Yeah. When uh, when I saw uh, uh, To Death There Was Part, the antecedent to All in the Family, they had made eight shows. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah, the British only do a couple. That, that was it, the only eight shows. Yeah. Uh, we had to do 24 or 26 shows the first year. Yeah, so. it's still like that in Britain, two so, seasons. Yes, I mean, it, there's something a lot more sensible and... Uh, and, and uh, 
cultivated about that. I don't know. So when did you know that it was picking up traction, that it was making a difference, that there was you were showing something that never been seen before? Did you know that going in, no. that you were doing something? No, no. I, I think the show could have been over before. I mean, I was hearing these things or reading these things. Yeah. But we were working our asses off. Yeah. Uh, uh, supporting families, making a living, doing, you know, I didn't even know I was doing so well for years. But did you yeah. know it was different than anything anyone had seen before? Well, I, I saw and heard that enough. It, did, it didn't always seem that different to us because we sat around a table. Uh, I had asked everybody to read a couple of newspapers, New York Times as well as the LA Times, yeah. later on the Wall Street Journal also, and uh, and pay attention to our kids and our sure. you know, those things that were impacting our children, right. our lives as a family, the economy, and so forth. And we came in and shared. Oh, somebody saw a story about uh, 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 hypertension in black males. Yeah, it was higher than in whites, yeah. noticeably. And uh, it's a hell of an idea for you know a seed for of a story for good times. Yeah. And that's kind of the way we worked. So it didn't honestly seem so different. So yeah, like, at that time, well, but with all in the family, you didn't feel like that seemed different either? I, I saw that, but it, working on it, you were we, just were, we were scraping the barrels of our experience. So at, at one time, you know, all in the family, Sanford and Son, Maude and Good Times and the Jeffersons. <laughs> and Mary <laughs> and, Hartman, Mary Hartman. And, and One Day at a Time, we're all in the air at the same time. Yeah. And those were all your shows. They were all our shows, Tandem TAT. I mean, this we you know we were a big group of people. Now it's not one guy. No, one, I know one I, guy I, kicked the ball to uh, to start, but you know there were a lot of people kicking the ball when uh, in the time you're talking about. But you were creating. And I had a Jerry Parencio in my life who made a business out of this. Right. But you created on the family Sanford and Son Maud, good times. Uh, those were the seeds of my yeah. Yeah. Right. And now, you know, Sanford and Son as a show and and now, I, Sanford and Son, I had very little to do with creatively. Okay. Cuz Sanford and Son, I'll take credit with Bud for falling in love with uh Red Fox with, with Red Fox in Las Vegas, worrying about whether he could ever clean up his act enough to do a show. Uh I'll take uh full credit for, you know, the part I own for that. Yeah. But it was geographically impossible for me to be involved with it because it was done at NBC in the Valley. Yeah. We were at CBS with all the other shows. Right. And uh, a story I love to tell is we sold, uh, oh, I'll take credit for that too, with Bud for Sanford and Son, we sold it in the CBS building yeah. on uh, Beverly Drive to NBC uh -huh. because I couldn't get anybody at CBS to come and look at our rehearsal. It was rehearsing. Fred and uh, Demond were rehearsing, you know, two little rehearsal halls away. And uh, and I was trying to get Fred Silverman or one of the other guys to come down and see it. And why wouldn't they? And they were in New York or they otherwise were busy or whatever. Yeah. And finally I called NBC. And they were at lunch in in, uh, in Beverly Hills. On the way back, they passed CBS, so they stopped. Uh -huh. And almost like hooded figures, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the hats brims down or whatever. Uh, but they saw it and bought a 
you know, right. within a day. And that was sort of like the same sort of tension was generational. Generational old, tension, right. yeah. And with Maud... But, that, but it was Bud and and, uh, and 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 writers who really got that show going. I it's did funny. not. And Maud was your show. And Maud, yes. And in in these were in that that type of female character had not really been seen in the modern television world. No. And and certainly with the Jeffersons, you know, and Good Times, you know, that representation of black families had not been seen. But there, in those two different ones, there had not been a black family on the tube. Yeah. And did did you know that going in? Was there resistance? Uh, there was no resistance to that. What what happened was we had uh, Esther Roll as Florida on uh, on Maud. Yeah, and uh, and people loved her. Mm-hmm. And we did shows that deliberately showed her stuff. I yeah, three hundred and sixty degrees of Esther Roll. When I knew there was a show there, uh, we introduced her husband and cast him as John Amos. So at some point, they saw, the network that is, saw in what I called the Bush Leagues in a smaller role on a big show, uh, their show, uh, they saw this couple now. Yeah. And it was easy to see there was a show in them. You know, I interviewed Jimmy Walker. Yes. And uh, I love Jimmy Walker. (laughs) And he was very damn funny. Yeah. yeah. His problem was what we were talking about before, 26 shows. Mm-hmm. You know, if the shows had been six shows or eight shows, Dynamite yeah. would not have condemned him. Right. Uh, you know, as it turned out to do years later. It just became that. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, what was it when you did, uh, you know, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? I remember that show. I was young, but I remember it being, you know, very uh, intense. What was the, what was the, the pitch on that? What was the angle? Well, that was that. That was the only show I can remember where beginning, middle, and end, what it was about was, you know, consumed it. It was about <laughs> we've talked about it. It was, the, it was the impact of the media on an average housewife. Mm-hmm. Of course, overstated to make its point and for comedy, but on the very first episode. I'm fond of saying and thinking about it. On the very first episode, a family of uh, five, their two goats and eight chickens were killed, slaughtered, uh, just around the corner. And you heard the sirens telling that story. Uh, And when she learned about it, she was consumed by the waxy yellow buildup on her floor. And she's looking at the product in her hand. And all she could think about was the, 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 the... the can promised that there would be no waxy yellow buildup. So there couldn't be, right. but still she was seeing it. <laughs> okay, that's the first show. Towards the end of the series, now this was five nights a week. Mary Hartman was on 11 o'clock at night in most cities at, uh, at, at, at five nights a week. Uh, so after several hundred episodes, she's on the David Susskind show. Literally, he's in the series. Was sitting. Uh, she's been. Uh, she's going to be the mother of the year. Some organization, and so she's being queried by three media types, psychologists, about what makes her the mother of the year, and they drive her insane. It's Twenty-seven minutes of, you know, whatever the length of that show was, and she goes insane. It's one of the great pieces of acting in history of television, I think. 
and uh, and a scene that follows uh, shortly thereafter in another episode. She's institutionalized, and she's looking at television, and somebody adjusts the television set, and she says, is that what I think it is? And the nurse says, yes, Mary, it is. And she said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. She goes very slowly, and as she's talking, other patients, inmates of this institution are gathered around her, and they're all staring straight ahead into a TV set as she says, I can't believe that I, Mary Hartman, after all this time, am finally a member of a Nielsen family. (laughs) Go to black. (laughs) Do you think that was the most uh, cutting satire that you created? Nothing more cutting. If it wasn't the most cutting, one day at a time, yeah. many years later, was savage uh, uh, where DC was concerned. Yeah. I think it was the first of the savage uh, satires on, on Washington politics. Uh-huh. But Mary Hartman, you know, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, yeah. was... <laughs> that was it. I adored it. Yeah. And you, you had, you know, a profound influence on a, a you know, I, I know that you have a relationship with, with Matt and Trey from South Park. Uh-huh. They, uh, they have a tremendous amount of respect for your balls. Well, they, they wanted to do Archie. Yeah. And they decided that I saw them on 60 Minutes, I think, the first time I heard them say this. Then they said it to me. Uh, on South they, Park. They, yeah, yeah. There was an Archie bunker, so they did a kit. And that's how uh, uh, Cartman was uh, came about. From Archie, I, I couldn't I couldn't be prouder of anything. Yeah, because I love South Park and so I, consistent. I love Trey. Yeah, and Matt, brilliant stuff. I mean, and and, uh, and and it always hits. I mean, they they find the juice. Brilliant, and so does Seth uh, on Family Guy. And love these guys. I forgot to ask you about um about your relationship with the movie Spinal Tap. Oh, where Rob Reiner, uh, uh, after uh, all... Oh, you the, knew when he was a kid. I knew I knew Rob Reiner when he was five years old. <laughs> yeah. uh, my do- He's the same age as my daughter, yeah. Ellen, my yeah. oldest daughter. And uh, and they were... Uh, I'll never forget him playing uh, jacks with my daughter, bouncing a ball and picking up the jacks. And What was unforgettable and about him? What was unforgettable was his the way he was talking to uh, to Ellen to say, that's not the way you, talk. you pick up the ball and then you drop the jacks and then you... And he sounded like uh, all the Jewish comics his father attracted and was one of. <laughs> yeah, at five. At five, six, yeah. Yeah, we spent a couple, two summers, uh, one following the other, at Fire Island in, uh, in summer. It, we had summer houses near each other. So you had a relationship so, his whole life. So all his life, yeah. yeah. And so anyway, Spinal Tap, he had eight pages, ten pages or whatever, because it was largely uh, improvised. Yeah. And it was it was wonderful. And yeah. we were, uh, we had just, uh, uh, Parencio had just bought Embassy, mm-hmm. and we were now in the picture business, and so we made that film. And what, what was the conversation, though? The conversation was nobody wanted to make it, but <laughs> but uh, I knew Rob, and I knew what he had in mind, and I, and I, I you know, I wish I could remember now the names of the characters because Derek Smalls was yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah, 
just the names of the characters make me laugh. Oh, yeah? So. And it turned out to be a legendary movie. Uh, yes. Now, obviously, we've done a lot of other things. I don't want to keep you here all night. I want to make sure I... Uh, like, there's stuff in, in your book... Yeah, I, I, I am enjoying the book immensely. Like, there's, I'd love to talk about Lee J. Cobb. I'd, I'd love to talk <laughs> about, I, I mean, you've had several lives. You've, you've got how many kids? Seven kids? Six. Six. One with the first wife, two with the second, three with this one. I just met one. You just half met my, my son. Yeah. Yep. But thank God you got all your marbles. Well, I hope so. I'll let me ask your viewers or listeners if the man sounded like he had all his marbles. And also this great stuff you do. I mean, what was your, your compassion about the, uh, the the Constitution? Declaration. The Declaration of well, Independence. Well, the Constitution, Sorry. too. It's the good. Whole, but you yeah. own a, 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 a copy of it, and you toured it. And, and I know someone in, in the book you talk about you know, what a lot of uh, Jews of your generation talk about. Uh, you know, even though you weren't that religious a Jew, the feeling of otherness and the feeling yeah. of, of having to pass or having to integrate and, and feeling that, that that sort of like not so veiled anti-Semitism that I think existed more so now that the uh, the Declaration of Independence and these documents in terms of freedom of speech and, and defining people's civil rights is very important to you on a personal level. And you toured with it. I toured 50 states with it. And with great, great uh, cooperation. I mean, uh, Home Depot... Uh, came up with $15 million to endorse and support uh, the tour. The, uh, the uh, Postal Service gave me a 16-wheeler and a driver for two years uh, so that the, uh, the uh, exhibition that was put together that was designed by David Rockwell, great architect, which could be small or large, was had a, a home that it traveled in, and uh, whether it was in a huge exhibition space or a small one, you know, I, I can't believe the cooperation I had. I did a, a, a version of America the Beautiful with 50 uh, uh, country western stars that was fabulous. And what, what, what was in your heart? What was your intention? The intention was to share the words that, that are there uh, that guarantee our equality under the law. Uh, it isn't like people are enjoying all people uh, equality under the world. We still have a long way to go, mm -hmm. but that that is the American promise, and uh, the words that make that promise are golden. And and I mean, interesting for me and my story as we've you know as I've spent too much time talking about me. Uh, Everything started with my relationship with my father, and it's interesting to me that uh, our country had fathers, mm -hmm. you know, and the documents were written by the founding fathers. All of that is a circle for me. It all collects. Do you feel like you have, uh, you know, like some closure around this father thing at this point? Yes. I mean, not that I, I'm learning. I learned in this conversation that I didn't uh, work my ass off to be that father since I was in that position. Uh, but I did. I know I did, but I did it on the shows. Oh, interesting. I did it on the shows. They were my children also. Mm. And, uh, and I've wondered how much more, 
you know, I have to learn about how what the word father made to me it meant to me, and uh, how much I, I have to learn about. You know, although a lot of time I wasted not being the best father I could be. Well, you got a, a third chance. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, the the search for a good father within another, you. Another and... 92 years, I may have it. <laughs> you know, I I do want to uh, to thank you, and I want to thank you for this great book. I don't read a lot oh, of the books I get. I'm so glad you're reading this, and I'm so glad it holds your interest, and I'm so glad to have spent this time. And uh, and uh, many years to come. I wish you many more years. Thank you. I'm gonna. St- I'll spend them in this garage. All right. I'm gonna go in the house. You can stay here. That's it. That's our show. What an amazing man. What a great conversation that was. No guitar today. Oh, listen to the sigh of relief. Some of you bastards are doing. I know. I know. But some of you are gonna miss it. So I right, need time to uh, need time to write some more compositions for my guitar. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF needs. We restocked the store for Christmas. Congratulations to those of you who got your Brian Jones mugs. He can only do 50 at a time. I'm sorry. What can I tell you? Oh, my God. I'm still in Florida. I'm starting to sweat up here. I'm in this little room on a twin mattress. I can't remember the last time I swept on a twin mattress. I got to stay away. There's still stuffing left. There's still gravy left. There's still mashed potatoes left. There's still one slice of pumpkin pie. There's cranberry sauce I made left. There's some rye bread. There's still some chopped liver left. There's some turkey. Oh, shit. You know what that means. Toasted rye bread, chopped liver, turkey, and cranberry sauce sandwich. Yeah, I, all right. Judge if you want. Those of you who are going like, ew, fine. But those of you who know, know that that's the greatest fucking sandwich in the world. Right? Oh, my God. I could Even my run didn't work out because I think that, like, if you run, I ran for four miles, and if you run, you know, what happens is whatever's just water weight, that drips off, and then what, what happens is it actually, the first run after Thanksgiving, it actually sets the fat. It sets it. Doesn't burn it off. Just burns off the water and then sets the fat. Solid. Solidifies the fat. That's where I'm at. You know what's happening for me when I get home. Uh, kale smoothies and uh, Weight Watchers, but don't tell anybody because I'm not I'm not heavy and I know I'm not heavy. And I know it pisses some of you off, but I'm going to go on Weight Watchers for a little while, and I'm going to have to somehow rid myself of this New York accent. That should take a couple of days. I mean, I'll just ha- hang out with some some uh, Latino people and, and and see if I can pick that one up. I've never maybe Chinese. I don't know. I, you know, the world is my oyster. Boomer lives. <laughs> <laughs>